1: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid work prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. 5 o'clock. <laughs> And Welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argore, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com welcoming you this Saturday evening and every Saturday to enlighten you to educate you, to increase your awareness, and um hopefully to entertain you as well primarily about the aftermath of crime and the um and the issues that surround it and so I want to say welcome to everyone if you're a repeat listener or if you're a newbie this evening, um we have a very um interesting show. And we do have a a repeat guest. We don't have many of them, but uh tonight we have dr. David uh, Schoenfeld, who is our guest, who is going to speak on the topic of um uh, children and bereaving and bereavement excuse me grieving and bereavement um primarily in the areas of uh dealing with um all kinds of grieving and uh some of it may be crime based, others may be natural death, uh, but specifically honing in on what to do in the educational realm because oftentimes may, parents may not know what to do and we have to turn to the educational system. And he has been um he has dedicated his career to um to working in, in this realm as well as being a uh behavioral developmental pediatrician. So before I bring him on in just a minute, I wanna say good evening, Delilah, and welcome and how are you and what's going on with Imagine Publicity this evening?
2: Oh all kinds of things there are always going on with Imagine Publicity. A lot of a lot of clients that um you know are, are working on several big projects. So that keeps us busy
1: yeah you wanna share just a nugget with somebody
2: or should well we we're go looking to website? <laughs> go ahead. yeah I think go to the website this This isn't the time and place to go in depth okay. on that kind of thing so
1: all right give her, give people your website
2: well imaginepublicity.com. dot com just check out um all of our clients and what they're up to and what you can do with them in the future if you like great. Okay,
1: well that's great. Um, we we have been looking forward to our, our guest this evening, right? Because we this is the second time we've had David on, and um, I think it's going to be very valuable to show. <clears throat> so without further wish, with, without delaying it any further, um, David, thank you so much for being on Shattered Life the second time. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Uh, it's nice to be here again.
1: Well, well, great. Um, let's see. We we have many areas that we could discuss this evening, but why don't you give us a, a thumbnail sketch on actually what your area of expertise is and go into the, you know, the, the two primary realms that you're dealing with, both the Coalition and the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement, if you would.
0: Well, certainly. Well, my uh, training background is as a developmental behavioral pediatrician. Uh, It's a relatively new field, only been around or only been recognized as board certified for about a dozen years. Um, It's a subspecialty of pediatrics that deals with common developmental and behavioral concerns. And so when I was doing my training over 25 years ago uh, in developmental behavioral pediatrics, I actually became interested in how children come to understand and adjust to serious illness and death and have concentrated a lot of my work in that area. So as you mentioned, I direct the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement, which is uh, currently located in Philadelphia. Um, And we've provided support to schools and community groups after crisis events as well as um, helped provide education and um, resources for learning about how to support grieving children, um, and one of the projects, as, as you alluded to, is the coalition to support grieving students.
1: Mm-hmm. Is it is it the only standalone um, center center of its of its kind, or are there are there others like it, or?
0: Well, there are bereavement centers around the country which provide support to children who are grieving. And, um, you know, if you're looking for a, a bereavement support group for a child... Um, there are a number of centers around the country. Many of them belong to the National Alliance of Grieving Children, and you can actually go on to a in grief. dot com and get a map of the country and find a bereavement center near you or a bereavement program such as bereavement camp. But our our center doesn't provide direct services to children who are grieving, but instead provides consultation, and training, and advocacy work to try and enhance children's um, supports. Uh, in their caring in caring communities, particularly schools, um, so that when they're dealing with crisis and loss, they're surrounded by adults that know how to support them. And that, I'm not aware of another center that has quite that focus. There are a mm-hmm. number of centers that also provide um, trauma and crisis services um, and do you know research and, and training in in trauma and crisis, but I'm not familiar with another uh center that has a focus on schools that brings together those areas of both crisis and bereavement
1: mhm well- could you venture to say that you've had um requests or to to consult in virtually all fifty states with all of the 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 mass shootings and uh uh, level of violence that we've had, say maybe within the last ten, ten fifteen years.
0: Well, we've certainly responded to a large number of school crisis events um, and provided training throughout the country as well as abroad. We've been to a number of other countries. I don't know that we've gone to all fifty states yet. I. You know, for example <laughs> I haven't been to Alaska yet. Um oh. <laughs> but uh I think we've had we've certainly had impact on people who are from all fifty states if they've attended national conferences or and the coalition that we helped to put together and help to lead the coalition to support grieving students uh, has ten professional organizations um that represent a number of different school professions and together they have just under five million uh, members. So I'm sure one well, of them must come from Alaska uh, but we, we haven't made it around. Uh, I personally have never, you know, I haven't been to Alaska and been
1: there's there, probably
0: a couple other states we we haven't had as much of a direct impact on uh, mm-hmm. but we, we do our best to try and provide some national coverage.
1: Right. And um, just, just to mention briefly we in the state of Connecticut became aware of you because of Governor Malloy's Commission with the with the Sandy Hook uh, massacre, correct?
0: Uh, yes. Well, I I uh, was invited to come to uh, Newtown shortly after the shooting, uh, and was there that weekend, uh, and provided some support in the initial week. And in part related to that, I was invited to be a member of the Sandy Hook Advisory Commission. We just mm-hmm. completed a report, the final report to the governor, just a couple weeks ago. Um, but we were meeting regularly since uh, shortly after the shooting had occurred until right. uh, quite recently.
1: At least a couple of years. And um, there are quite a number of mental health recommendations uh, there there as well uh, with regard to, you know, what to do in the future. And I, the fact remains, though, we don't know whether with budget cuts we're going to be able to implement them, and I'm sure it, it has been uh, – very upsetting for parents and i'm I'm reading in in our in our uh, uh newspapers here that there' you know parents are upset but uh we have to make hard choices so and I'm sure that's part of it but i'm wondering um with respect to uh the coalition to support grieving students uh can you describe for us how how that came to be and you identified a particular need and uh, how did it how how did it evolve
0: Certainly well, a lot of the reason for setting up the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement, which was uh, initially funded from the September eleventh children's Fund and the National Philanthropic Trust in two thousand and five um, it it was uh it was initiated because I really felt. Uh, and the others that uh, worked with me, that we needed to try and advocate more to get school professionals better prepared and more comfortable in supporting children who had experienced loss or who were dealing with crisis. Um, This came about in part because I had been doing work in this area for quite some time. um, And after September 11th, um, 2001, I was asked by the New York City school system to coordinate the training for their school crisis teams throughout the system. And it New York City schools is a very large school system. They had, at the time, you know, it was about 1.1 million students in about 1,200 schools that were, at uh, that time, divided into over 40 school districts. And so, we developed a strategy for training the school, di- you know, the school system, um, and that meant we set up a citywide school crisis team, as well as and trained teams in each of the over 40 school districts, and then trained teams in over 1,000 schools. And we did this training through um, live in-person, full-day training workshops. Um, So it was a train-the-trainer model? Uh, It wasn't as much a train-the-trainer model as uh, we trained district-level teams, and then we also Mm -hmm. trained school-based teams. Uh, But the idea was to try and and implement teams throughout the system pretty much at, all at around the same time. I mean, we started the district teams first, but the school crisis teams came within a month. And, and somebody came up to me after one of those trainings and said, you know, it really would be a good idea if all of the teachers or classroom educators participated in at least part of this training, and specifically around the bereavement, I think was what they were had uh, pointed out. And I asked them how many... People that was, and uh, by that person 's estimate, uh, if you included the paraprofessionals in the class, I think it was around one hundred and twenty or one hundred and thirty thousand people just in oh the American school system, and <laughs> at that point, I kind of said well wouldn't it make more sense if educators learned some of this before they got their license or before they graduated from education school wouldn't it make sense that this was integrated within the training of all educators and school professionals because you have to anticipate that you're going to be working with children who have experienced loss or crisis. It's just so much a part of the life of, of children right. everywhere. They, you know you're going to have them in your classroom. Wouldn't it make sense to, to get some of that training beforehand? Some of that was actually just my sense of I couldn't possibly go around and do much more training than I was doing. Um, and so that right. was the idea behind the funding of the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. It was really to try and make those changes. And so that was back in 2005, and and now we're, you know, 10 years later. And um, we'd, we've we done a number of different things, a number of projects and developed training materials and um, gotten information out in a number of venues, Um But one of the projects that we did was with the American Federation of Teachers uh, several years ago, and they polled their members, um, surveyed over 1,000 of their members, and educators said that they had children who were grieving in their classes, that they knew that it was an important issue that impacted on their learning, their adjustment, their development, their behavior. They also knew that schools could play a unique role uh, to complement and support families um, and to help these kids, and they wanted to do that. Uh, but they said that the primary reason that they didn't was that they had never received the training. Um only about 7% had received any training, and those who had had generally gotten it for themselves because only about 3% of the school districts were reported to have any training in this area. So, so there's
1: nothing incorporated in the curriculum I mean, now um, that would even deal with one course on death and dying or grieving or something?
0: It's not standardized, um, and... It's hard for us to know what's being offered where, but at least by Mm -hmm. the teacher's reports, only 7% said they had gotten any training whether that was in graduate school, undergraduate, or in professional development after they were in the field. So we have to think that the vast majority are not getting this information in any significant amount. Um, And so often what happens is uh, school professionals do nothing. We we find often that they don't even talk to the children, sometimes not even acknowledging that they know they've had a death of a family member or a friend because they're they they are afraid they're going to do the wrong thing or make things worse, so they do nothing, mm-hmm. which is probably the worst thing to do because mm-hmm. it suggests to children that either you don't care, you don't think it's important, um, or you're unprepared or, or, worse yet, unwilling to even try and help them um and that means that the kids end up grieving alone and are isolated uh and unsupported. So mm-hmm. that's why we established the coalition to support grieving students was to bring together those the professions uh that could help kids.
2: Is there uh, in, is in the years that you've been doing this um I don't know have you have you gone back and looked at some of the children and followed their history and so forth to maybe um, put together statistics as to the children who received these services versus those who did not. Did they do so much better within their psychological life, or or how how can you? Is there any measurement, or right. does there even need to be?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, the issue is that if you if you do surveys of, of children and ask what percent of them have had personal loss. Um, The estimates, we know about four to five percent of U.S. children experience the death of a parent by the time they're 16. That's by U.S. Census data. But in terms of how many have experienced the death of a family member or friend, the survey suggests it's about 90 percent. So virtually all children by the time they complete high school. So it's not really, you really can't identify children who have experienced loss and those who have not because loss is so common. Um, In terms of whether we have had an impact, um, a lot of the vast majority of our work, and virtually all of it at this point, is through training of professionals. It isn't through direct service to the children. Um, My belief, and and that of the people in our center, is that the best way to support children is to have those who know, care, and love them support them, not to have strangers um, kind of descend on a school after a crisis and provide direct service. Um, That's not to say that after a crisis it isn't useful to have other people um, throughout the school district and the community come and support kids. I'm more referring, if there's an if there was a crisis in Alaska, and I did respond um for me to go to Alaska and walk into a school and come up to a you know a ten year old or twelve year old or even a fifteen year old and to start to talk to them and try and support them and then to leave a day or two later and not to return doesn't really help them as much as if I spend that time with professionals um and and paraprofessionals and others that are part of that community and help empower them to feel more comfortable supporting these children because they're with them in the long run um, mm-hmm. and often have already established the relationship, uh, but certainly are there to maintain the relationship. So and are they receptive,
1: when, David? Are they, are they welcoming or it's like, oh, my God, I have to do Common Core and I have to do this and I have to, and now it's another thing. But I wouldn't think, because this is so important, that probably it is very well received. Am am I correct?
0: It's variable, as you would imagine. Um, (laughs) I'm finding that increasingly uh, educators and other school professionals uh, recognize the importance of this and are looking for more training and um, improved skills in this area. And that was Mm -hmm. one of the one of the things that we did with the American Federation of Teachers, I mean, at the national level, they recognized years ago that this was important, uh, but they thought it was important that the request for the training came from their membership as opposed to being told by the leadership that this was what you know, we mm-hmm. thought educators should get. So, right. um our first project with the American Federation of Teachers actually had us working with a number of selected AFT chapters across the country. And um, within a fairly short period of time, um, feedback came back to the national office that this was really important, and they allowed the members uh, to tell other members that this was something that was really useful. And then once the membership was requesting this, then that's when we moved to the Coalition to Support Grieving Students project.
1: Oh, I see. Um, Well... Yeah, that that certainly sounds like maybe you don't go in like gangbusters, but you kind of, you know, build your credibility there, um, and then they pass the word. It, it it certainly sounds like the way to go. Um I'm I'm wondering if maybe you can talk briefly about the um some of the concepts of death with regard to children that you did in the 12-minute video that I watched and, and maybe, maybe some of the content of the modules and, and, and get into the content and what people might anticipate if they want to go in and, and see some of the materials.
0: Certainly. Well, let me let me start by explaining just a Go little ahead. bit more about the coalition and the website, oh, sure. and then Go I'll ahead. talk some about the content. Um, okay. The coalition is actually formed of 10 organizations. It includes the two major teacher unions, which is the American Federation of Teachers, uh, AFT, but it's also the National Education Association, the NEA. Um, we also realized and recognized that um, if if we did training for educators and they felt more comfortable doing doing some bereavement support. I want to clarify, we're not training teachers to be mental health professionals or to provide bereavement counseling. We're actually just helping them provide support to children who are grieving. So it's a a much more practically oriented basic skills approach to because the teachers already understand child development and they're empathic to begin with, otherwise right. they wouldn't be in their field. So we just want to make them feel a little more comfortable to continue to be empathic and supportive even when a child is grieving. So we have for them to be able to do that, they really need to have the support and the encouragement of their school administrators. So um, there were four, there are four different school administration organizations that are part of the coalition, it includes the National Association of both Elementary School and Secondary School Principals, the American Federation of School Administrators, and the School Superintendents Association. So so that's six of the organizations, and the other four are the National Association for School Nurses, the School Social Work Association of America, the American School Counselors Association, and the National Association of School Nurses. So what we tried to do was to put together the some of the major organizations that include educators, paraprofessionals, school school administrators, school mental health providers, and other support personnel. So social
1: workers and guidance counselors included as well?
0: Yes. The social it's the School Social Work Association of America is one of the founding members. Um and the other member which I didn't mention is the New Yeah, it is the New York Life Foundation. They're one of the founding partners. Um and they also provide Provided the support for the project, so those organizations um, have come together, and, we'll, and we've been meeting for about a year and a half, and we've developed material um, that is that can be freely accessed at grievingstudents.org, and at that website are a number of probably about uh, twenty or so um, individual video modules that are also accompanied by print summaries, and they cover a range of different topics uh, related to pediatric bereavement and how to support students. So one of them that you had mentioned was a video that, that went over uh, children's concepts about death, because we know particularly for young children, their understanding of death is limited by their cognitive development. And for mm-hmm. them to be able to maximally cope and adjust to a loss, they need to understand certain things about it. So the research really suggests that there are four major concepts, and and those concepts are that the first one is that death is irreversible. So when someone dies, they don't come back to life again. In television shows and in books, sometimes the characters do come back to life. But in in reality, they don't. And children need to understand that death is irreversible. Otherwise, they may just wait for the person to come back or be upset that they haven't returned or contacted them, such as for special occasions. But you really have no reason to begin um, to, to begin the process of adjusting to a death um, and grieving um, until you realize that it is irreversible. So that's one of the mm-hmm. earliest concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, while it's very difficult to accept that someone who has died is not coming back, it's actually not that complicated cognitively to understand that. Um, if you think about it, very young children, one of the phrases that... They struggle to, you know, that they all learn um, is is often you'll find it in baby books. uh, It's usually there's a picture of a baby turning over an empty bowl, and you know it says underneath all gone, Mm -hmm.
2: and so that's something that a
0: lot of kids learn, and um, you know will will say all gone, and they know that means it's gone, it's not coming back, Um, and so I remember uh, explaining. A close family member's death to my child when she was about 20 months old, and she didn't really understand the word death yet. And I hadn't mm-hmm. taught it to her, and finally, I, you know, I tried different ways, and then I finally said, "The person is all gone." And she she looked at me, and she said, "All gone." And then she went over to the bag where a baby book was. She took it out. She turned it to the page. Where the child, you know, turns over the bowl and says, all gone. And she just said the person's name and said, all gone. And I said, yes, all gone. And at that point, she never asked to see her again. She understood that meant she was all gone. So Mm -hmm. I just use that as an example because people will say, you know, young children can never understand that death is irreversible. Actually, they can at pretty young ages understand it. They may not wish to or be ready to accept it, but that happens with adults too. So Mm -hmm. the second concept that they need to understand is that all life functions end completely at the time of death. So when someone dies, everything that makes them alive ends completely. So young children appreciate the fact that when someone's dead, they're not, they're not fully alive, but they may not really understand what life functions are um, and know that they end completely. So they may say that people who are dead can't move as much. Uh, and when you ask them why, they might say, well, the coffin is small, or there's not enough room in the coffin to move. Or they may view them as if they're asleep, and they're, uh, but not that all of their life functions end. So if you you think about it, you know, initially children think everything that's alive, everything that exists is alive. We call that animism. Um, So if you kick the door, you know, the door might hurt. Um, And then, you know, their stuffed animal can be hungry. And then they start to realize that only things that have certain characteristics, for example, that move, um, are alive. But then... You know the car is alive, but a plant isn't, uh, or may not be viewed as being alive. And so they might say, "Well, it's self locomotion," but then of course a robot might be seen as alive, and again, a tree might not be seen as alive. So they very confusing
1: it, for even an adult versus a child. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah, so it really, if you think about it, it, it takes some understanding um, to be able to sort out. You know what what it, what makes something alive and then what is and then and then you can know okay well all of those things stop so if you have a child who's say 4 years old and you ask them to draw a picture to put in the casket with a loved one who's died that may imply to a child that the person in the casket can see it i mean otherwise why would you draw a picture for someone you care about and give it to them after they've dead if they can't actually see it We may understand that as being abstract, um, but from a child, they're very concrete. So if it means that the individual who's died is aware that there's a picture and can see it, that means they are also aware that they're in a box and that they're underground and that they're trapped. And so you'll find that children may actually uh, be very concerned about physical suffering of deceased and if you think about the horror stories for children at that age or that are often written um for children in general but are viewed by even young children there's a lot of you know vampires zombies living dead hands coming out of the grave people buried alive it's a common just a common theme so we really need children to understand that all life functions cease completely at the time of death so that they don't worry about the physical suffering of deceased And then the third concept is that everything that's alive eventually dies. We just call it, you know, it's inevitable. And you don't, it's a hard concept to kind of um, teach a child right after they've experienced a death.
1: Hello?
2: I think we just lost David. He's been disconnected. His call was dropped. Hopefully he'll call right back in. Okay. Well, I think this is this is a terribly important discussion that um that should benefit a lot of the listeners. I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there who um yeah. and teachers and educators that um, will definitely benefit from this conversation. Oh, I
1: I totally agree and I want to ask if if perhaps there are um I know that there are w- w- webinars as well as publications and they also can do uh conference presentations but are there lessons that, that they can incorporate like in, into the daily lesson plans or or something uh with the
2: teachers
1: just to kind of kind of introduce the children to these things um i would think that would be valuable okay. as well so
2: oh absolutely um, Here we have david back now you're called off. oh good
1: are you there
0: Okay, yes, we're I'm sorry. sorry. I don't know why that happened.
1: The cloud is right. We're very sorry. Nothing personal.
0: Okay. So did you want me to pick up and, and finish those last yeah, two things? Yeah, or?
1: The, you were talking about the third concept.
0: Right, and that's that death is inevitable. Uh, and, and what I was saying is that if, if children don't realize that everyone eventually dies, if they somehow think certain people are excluded, such as themselves or people that they care about, then when someone they care about dies, they have to ask themselves, well, why was that person selected? If it's mm-hmm. if it's not inevitable, there was a choice. Someone made that choice. And usually uh, children will conclude that someone they care about was killed because they were bad, and mm-hmm. which means you should be ashamed of the person that died and there's some fault associated with it. Or the child may assume that they, the child themselves, uh, did something wrong, And as a form of punishment, someone they care about was killed, in which case they'll feel guilty. And with the guilt and the shame usually comes silence. And so understanding that, no, it is actually inevitable and it's part of life, um, actually helps them have a better understanding of the cause of death and less like less likelihood to feel guilty or ashamed. And that's the, and the fourth concept is just a sense of the cause of death. And so if children understand the real cause of the death at at least a basic level, they're mm-hmm. less likely to associate shame or guilt with it. So those are the four concepts and um, and we've found that if children understand those four concepts, they're more likely to be able to cope with the death.
1: And how, how are those taught? If, if- Parents are not enlightened to be able to understand the children's cognitive level. And the fact one one comment I remember you saying on the video about them uh, their body being in, in, the, co- in the coffin, but the, the child somehow disassociated and thought that maybe the head was missing because you talk about it as the body. So right. how do you know how do how do children learn these? How long does it take to learn them?
0: Well on average children will learn most children will learn these concepts between five and seven years of age and that's it that's without any particular education aimed at teaching it um, We know that children uh, the research that I did in my fellowship training actually was to see if you could teach children these concepts through classroom based uh presentations. Mm-hmm. I was working with four to eight year olds and actually they can they do learn them um, it's within their capability of learning them at younger ages, and children who have experienced losses tend to advance more quickly um, mm-hmm. and understand them at younger ages but as you mentioned it's it's not only that we don't consciously teach this to children um or even try to explain it to them in ways that help them understand it better they they actually are exposed to a lot of misinformation. And, um, you know, if you think about the stories that children are told at young ages, um, it, it's almost as if it was designed to make them not understand it. I mean, I can give you an example, if you'd like, of, sure. of common things. Well, if you think about Snow White, I'm not trying to pick on Snow White, but I remember going to mm-hmm. see it when it was re
2: He's dropped again. This is unusual. Oh, my goodness. I'm so embarrassed. I'm, well, it, it happens, and I don't I don't believe it's on our end. <laughs> I think it may be nope. on his end. Oh, can Brando. you hear me? I can hear you. I okay. So you and I are both yep. here. But yes, he, but again, his, his call has dropped, so hopefully he'll call in again. In you?
1: I know. My goodness. Um, yeah. So there are, you know, there are up to 20 modules that I believe take about three to four hours. Uh, but the beauty of it is that if you are to go in and listen, even if you are a parent or an educator or an advocate of some type, um, they're, they're 10 minutes long and they're very interactive and, um, so I'm thinking that um, even though if you are a parent listening, you can refer your school system. And that's what I wanted to ask to say, hey, I'd like you to take a look at this. I think it would be very valuable to right. think of this in our school. And what can we do? I'm back
2: again, on? by maybe the maybe way. You can, oh. you can answer that
1: question. Oh, I, okay.
0: I am yeah. so sorry. I don't know why I keep getting dropped. I'm on a landline, so it shouldn't be happening. um, I I know.
1: Well, our apologies again. We'll we'll just cross our fingers. It's the last time. (laughs) Um, So I was
0: was starting to talk about Snow White as an example. I was with my my daughter. I think she was probably four at the time, and Snow White had been re-released. This was quite some time ago. And she was sitting in my lap, and I'm watching the movie. And if you think about the theme, it's about a girl whose mother has died. She is then placed into a blended family. Um, there are a lot of children in blended families it's unfortunate that in this case the mother wants to kill her because she's too beautiful um, and she somehow feels threatened by that So um, that's not a good way to present a model blended family to children. And so the girl's coping mechanism, she's not able to turn to another adult or somebody that she can trust for support and assistance. She has to actually flee for her life because someone is trying to come and kill her and cut out her heart, which is obviously already pretty troubling. And so what happens then is uh, she escapes into the woods, She's then pursued with someone trying to murder her at the request of her mother, uh, stepmother at this point. And the stepmother then um, comes up with a plan that she will turn herself into an ugly old hag, is the way she describes it, which really is not a very good way to represent the elderly. Um, And again, it's this theme that those who are beautiful are to be trusted and those who are ugly Ugly, are not. Right. And so what she's going to do then is find her daughter and she's going to give her an apple. I don't know why it couldn't have been junk food of some sort. Um, <laughs> why would we have to make them fear fruits and vegetables? So she's going to give her an apple and it has been, um, it, magic has been used. Magic is very f- kind of frightening, can be very frightening to children because they don't understand it, can't predict it. And then when she bites the apple, you know, then what's going to happen to her? And I kind of remembered that she was going to die. But no, Um, this, you know, her stepmother says um, she will fall into an everlasting sleep and the dwarfs, thinking that she is dead, will bury her alive. Now, at that point, I was just, that goes right into really the, the what we call the finality of death knowing that all life functions cease at the time of death and the concept of being buried alive is very frightening particularly when you don't quite know the difference between being asleep and being dead and my daughter slept well through the night and i didn't want that to stop so in the middle of the movie kind of whispered to her dear, you know dear you do know that we do not bury people when they're sleeping we know the difference And she kind of said to me in this, you know, very soft whisper that everyone could hear in the theater, Dad, it is just a movie. It's pretend. Of course I know there's a difference between sleep and dead. Just listen, you know, just watch the movie. So then what happens is um, she does bite the apple. Um, She falls into this everlasting sleep. But the dwarves, thinking she is so beautiful, even in death, decide to bury her in a glass coffin above ground. So they can sit and watch her dead body, which is a pretty disturbing idea to begin with. But then I think even more disturbing is that this prince, by you know, rides by on, on his horse, decides she is so beautiful even in death that he opens the coffin and kisses a strange dead body. Now that in itself should be disturbing for anyone. But then she awakens and decides that he is so handsome not, is not disturbed by the fact that he kissed a strange dead body and decides that he is so handsome and powerful because he's rich that she will marry him and rides off to the castle, which would be the last thing I would want my daughter to do if, a, if with a stranger who would do uh-huh. something like that. So if you think about it, that's the stories that these kids Hope are exposed are. to.
1: So Have you it's written a it's journal kind of article about this. <laughs> I mean really. Well,
0: and and if you think about all, a lot of the other stories, death's are very common themes in in uh fairy tales and in mm-hmm. in stories written for children and the thing is that it's it's almost surprising that they ever get it right given right. what they're being exposed to. And now there's been some suggestion. Um, there was a, a researcher that looked into this um, who's a child psychiatrist by the name of Lenore Terre, And she found that some of the people that write horror stories um, actually experienced deaths when they were at the ages when they were learning these concepts. And that they keep telling the stories almost like they're they need to reprocess that experience. And one of the reasons they're so effective and they become successful is because a lot of these horror stories tie into these concepts. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who will write stories about, uh, you know, vampires, zombies, living dead. Uh, and it's it, they're scary because they're, and if you watch those stories, they often involve children, children being attacked um, People being attacked in their sleep, confusing death with sleep or it being somehow blurred so a lot of the a lot of this does seem to have to do with children's emerging concepts about death and um fears associated with that
1: we know then we have to debrief children when they when they watch fairy tales then I mean that's kind of um i guess i, I it didn't occur to me, and I somehow. Got over that period because I know I saw that movie, but uh, what makes the difference? Is it is it resilience? Is it the way you're you're brought up? In that some children will be traumatized and get the wrong ideas, and others will not. What makes the difference? Well,
0: I think in terms of understanding concepts about death, is is children will develop an understanding of it even if they're not taught it just by experiencing life. So I, I had a friend who had a two-year-old, and he came across a frog that had been run over in the street. She was telling me this because she knew of my work in this area. And the boy said something like, you know, froggy dead. And the mother said, no, the frog's not dead. The frog's just asleep. And I think Uh-oh. she was telling me that because she thought that was a good answer. But actually, the mm-hmm. last thing I would want a child to think, is that they looked like that frog that had been run over by a car when they go to sleep, I mean, or that that would happen to them. So Mm -hmm. I said, well, what did your child say? And she said, for some reason, he just kept saying, mommy, frog not sleep, frog dead. And so here the mother was giving (laughs) the wrong information, but the child knew it was wrong. So Uh I think for a lot of kids, it's it's not so much that they're resilient um, by learning these concepts. It's that The concepts are right, and it is what happens in life. And so they figure it out through their life experiences, and although they may get misinformation, they also have other sources of correct information. I think the issue comes when they experience a personal loss, whether or not they're resilient, and some of that may be from what they understand. But it probably even is more important that they have someone that supports them and that they have other supportive, you know, resources and internal uh, capacity to cope that helps them with the resiliency.
1: Yeah, are there um, opportunities with your program to when you train the educators to do lessons that they incorporate like every day, so that they could pass on some. This like I always loved having circle. You know and when you do i mean is that kind of how it's geared so that they could not only be supportive when there is a personal loss but also educate educate the children informally to some of these concepts that may be confusing sure.
0: well, um when I did my research project, I actually wrote a curriculum and taught it um that's believe it or not the children enjoyed it they wanted to talk about it now these were 4 to 8 year olds it was pre-kindergarten to second grade and uh-huh. um the kids you know really appreciated the opportunity to talk about something that was important to them um having said that though uh, we don't we don't really um we're not really encouraging teachers to teach a curriculum about death um, mm-hmm. Particularly to the to the young children who would be learning these concepts, but rather to take advantage of naturally occurring experiences and comments. So, you know, I remember when my daughter was, um, I think I think she was in kindergarten or could have been in preschool, and um, my wife said, you know, why don't you ask your daughter what she's bringing to show and tell? And so I said, well, what are you bringing to show and tell? And she's, it was a a stuffed animal. And so I'm like, okay, she's bringing a stuffed dog to show and tell. And so my wife said, well, why don't you ask her what she's going to say? And I said, well, what are you going to tell the class? And she said, I'm going to tell the class that this was a stuffed animal that was made by my dead grandmother. She had two grandmothers. One was alive and one was dead. And Mm -hmm. so my wife looked at me and said, well, What should she, you know, what are we going to do? And I go, what do you mean, what are we going to do? And she said, well, if she goes to class and says she's got this stuffed animal from her grandmother who's dead, you know, what's going to happen? And I said, well, two things could happen. One is the teacher could use that as an opportunity to talk about how she might miss her grandmother who's dead or what it means when someone dies. Or the other is that the teacher's going to ignore it and just start talking about the stuffed animal which is obviously the less educational and probably less relevant point.
1: Or they think and that people who are dead can make animals. <laughs> right,
0: well, can. it was it was given to her before. It was made by yeah, my uh, by her grandmother before. Well, yes, I think I think they did get that cuz I think they were 4 <laughs> or 5. I'm being um, devil's advocate
1: here. (laughs) Yeah.
0: What actually happened was what I expected, which was the teacher Mm -hmm. just talked about the stuffed animal and kind of ignored the learning opportunity there. Oh.
1: And that's, I think, which
0: they didn't say anything about her grandmother.
1: Uh And
0: that's why my daughter brought it. I mean, she didn't bring it because she, I mean, the stuffed animal was made by her grandmother, but otherwise it, that was the only special thing about it, was who right. made it. It wasn't the, the stuffed animal itself.
1: Well, don't you think this teacher must have thought, again, as you were saying, oh, this is uncharted territory, this is sensitive, Sensitive. we have to be uh, uh, politically correct and not broach this topic with them because, you know, God forbid we haven't been trained. And so I'm just not going to say anything.
0: Well, a lot of times teachers tell me, you know, they're afraid that they're going to upset the children because right. if they ask, you know, if somebody says my mother died and you say, oh, how are you doing, and the kid starts crying, you think you've upset them. I keep explaining that you're not upsetting the child; the child's upset because of the death. If you ask mm-hmm. them how they feel and they start crying, all they've done is show you how they were already feeling. You didn't right. cause emotional
1: release, right? That and so then they say,
0: well, I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. So then I go over, well, what are the wrong things? And, you know, to be quite honest, I, I give advice to people about what are things you would want to avoid saying and what are mm-hmm. things that probably are more appropriate to say. The bottom line is um, it's it's like the fairy tales and, and children's stories. They get a lot of misinformation, and there's a lot of things we say as adults that aren't ideal, it uh, may even be wrong from time to time. Well, but what's most important is we care and we're there for them and right. we show that concern. Um, Will you want to give us a couple of examples
1: they... that, that you might give just sure. so people know?
0: And mm-hmm. so a couple of things that are commonly said and probably should be avoided, and this is in the context of when it's a, it's a professional, like a teacher, Who's supporting a child? It's very different if you're talking about something you might say to a friend, a colleague. Um, you mm-hmm. know, but this is—I'm really referring to when there's somebody who's had, the child is the focus, and the adult is there because it's their job. You know, so th- in in that situation, you know, as my kids taught me, it's all about the kid. You know, it's not—it's not a mutual relationship where you're supposed to gain as much. You're supposed to be helping the kid. So in that situation, I would avoid things like um, trying to cheer the child up. This is off, This is probably the most common approach, is that pe- anything that begins with at least should probably be reconsidered. You know, at least he's not in pain anymore. At least you still have your mother. Or at least you were able to spend the holidays together. To say that pretty much is, it belittles the loss. It minimizes the loss and it's really just that the the child is grieving and the adult doesn't want to see it because it makes them uncomfortable. So they yeah, try to cheer up the child so they stop crying or looking upset. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a common one and these apply to adults too. It's not just it's not just kids. Um another one would be to tell them you know how they feel, you know, you must be angry. You shouldn't be telling people how they should feel. Um you should be asking them how they feel. Um You you also, you know, this is one where it may be more appropriate when you're talking with a peer or family member, but I think a lot of times we try and make comparisons, and whenever we do that, when we compare and share our own personal experiences, um, one of two things happens, either what we say pales by comparison, and it's insulting. So I had a nurse tell a family um, when their child had died of uh, sudden infant death syndrome, I know what you're going through. My dog died this weekend. So that's just the family uh, was just insulted uh, that mm-hmm. their death of their child would be compared to the nurse's death of a dog. But the opposite can also occur where a child says, my dog died, and he said, oh, I know you know, I I cannot understand that. You know, my mother just died this weekend. Then the child has to turn around and support the teacher, um, or whatever adult said that, because then it doesn't seem right to to talk about your loss when the other person's loss is worse. So
1: well, would you say I wouldn't make to be the comparison comparable? The loss needs needs to be somewhat equitable. If it's oh my dog died, oh well my cat died. My grandma died. Oh, or my 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 mother I, died. But
0: Something even when like you that. do that, even yeah. if it's comparable, then yeah. what happens is that means that the support should go both ways, and you're burdening yeah. the person who's acutely grieving to have to support you. I, so I, that's I why
1: what y-
0: you might do that if it's your brother that you're talking to or a yeah, friend? Yeah, but it's not a
1: teacher or teacher child. But a teacher
0: taking care of a child, right. it's all about them the yeah. the person getting the support's the kid. And that's why mm-hmm. I said my kids taught me sometimes it's just all about them. And if they're really upset about something and I try and tell them what happened to work at you know, at work for me, it's kinda like I don't really care what happened at work. I'm telling you what happened to me. I need right. help. So when somebody's <laughs> acutely grieving
2: mm-hmm.
0: um it's really best to just focus on them uh and what they need.
2: Right. Um well, so
0: Yep.
1: That's good. we have about six minutes or so left. Can can you give us an overview of some of the content of the modules?
0: Certainly. Um and I should say these modules are such that you can go online um and you can just watch one or two. You don't have to go through all of them. Um it's not a set okay. curriculum. So we not have consecutive. uh So they're in six different areas, and one is on conversation and support, so it's on how to talk to children. There's one on what not to say. In the talking with children, we actually have some uh, video clips of actors that we used where um, one is playing the role of an educator and the other of a child. We have one of a young child and an older child, and so they kind of act out, and we Um, A scenario where the educator is talking to the child for the first time after they've come back to school. So that might be useful for some people to watch, even if they're not in school settings. We talk about providing support over time and really the role of peer support and how to assist with that. We have one section on developmental and cultural considerations, and so we talk about the concepts of death, as I already mentioned. Uh, We talk about the importance of connecting with families and issues around cultural sensitivity. We have a third section that deals with more kind of practical considerations, such as advice around funeral attendance, the issues of secondary losses. Um, You know, when somebody dies, um, the person loses not only the individual they care about, but they also lose everything that person might do or had done for them. So if, you know, if a mother dies six years later when the girl enters puberty, for example, she may now realize that she's lost the person who might have helped guide her through that experience. Um, and that's then a secondary loss. We also talk about cumulative losses, about particularly communities where there are multiple losses, trying to to dispel the myth that you know kids who have experienced a lot of loss just get used to it. They don't actually just get used to it. They actually just realize that the adults around them aren't going to provide them the support, so they stop asking for it but they actually just are multiply traumatized by those events. We talk about coordinating services and supporting transitions for kids that are moving from one school to another, such as at graduation. Um, And then we talk some about social media and its role in supporting children uh, who are grieving. And then we talk about um, grief reactions and grief triggers, guilt and shame, other reactions and what kind of anniversary reactions and other triggers. We have a section on professional preparation and self-care. And then we have another, the last section is on crisis and other special circumstances. Talk about death uh, occurring in a school of a student or staff member and school crisis response, suicide, commemoration and memorialization. And then we have a module on potentially life-limiting conditions when children attend school, when they are uh, have serious illnesses that might be terminal or fatal.
1: Wow! So, so it, those it, it are the, really do cover the whole gamut, then. Yeah. Right. That and really then we fair.
0: have a a range of other additional resources that are there: booklets that can be downloaded, guidance documents. That's in an additional resources section, and we continue to add to this that section as well.
1: Well, that's great. If um if someone is listening and they happen to be an educator. Can they, or or alternately, I know it's not specifically designed for parents, but can they somehow um, bring the this to, to their school system's attention and say, hey, we would like, I'd like to see you incorporate some of this material or can we somehow, um, you know, use it? How, how does somebody go about that if they're listening now yep. and they'd like to make use of it?
0: Just go to grievingstudents.org and the material that's there is available for free download. So um, each of the video modules also has uh, print summaries and those summaries can be photocopied and distributed. And there is uh, there is a number of other materials in the additional resources section which also can be photocopied and a number of them which can be ordered at no charge uh, from achildingrief.com. Um, So that's a website that the New York Life Foundation has established in their booklets on how to talk to a child who's grieving. that goes over a lot of what I discussed, uh, some Uh of which I wrote or co-wrote. And those materials are not only freely downloadable in a PDF format – but you can actually mm-hmm. order free copies uh, from the new york life foundation and and they even pay at this point postage and handling
2: um wow. kind of
0: as a as a community service um some of one of the booklets for example is, has already been translated into spanish um and as well as some in in hard copies that can be ordered mm-hmm. um but they've also been translated into other languages as well
1: well well that's that's very good um i Uh, you you can't get any better than free. And um, are you also available if people have a question, I mean, in terms of uh, consultation or an email or if if they want to ask you about a particular thing or to consult with school system?
0: The National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement provides free technical assistance and consultation to schools in crisis situations. And um, you can contact us at our toll-free number, 877 536-2722 536-2722 or if you go to grievingstudents.org dot um, org, mm-hmm. our information is listed there, and you can uh, also just email info at grievingstudents dot org, um, uh-huh. and that phone number comes to me, and that email address comes to me as well. So um, and others at the center, so we're we're happy to help uh, people. Our primary role, though, is to support schools, so yeah. we don't don't call for an appointment uh, right. for your child okay. because we, we don't see the children for individual bereavement counseling, but we can, yeah. uh, we could help you find well, one well, in your community.
1: I understand. Yeah. Well, well, that sounds just great. And unfortunately, and we're very sorry about the two drop calls, but we're going to have to close out for this hour, but will you stay in touch with me? Perhaps we could, we could do another show at some other time in the future.
2: Sure. Happy We'd to like
1: help. That? Well, that'd be great. Well, so thank you so very much. Do I have any parting comments?
2: I think, it, again, it was just such a wonderful time to have a conversation with um, Dr. Schoenfeld. And yep. uh, I think there is so much information out there for educators, parents, and, and things that children need. And hopefully our yeah. listeners will pick up the ball or and run with it. Right,
1: and I we're going. I'm going to promote that too after the show as well, so that they will hopefully, and repeat it, and the, be sure to listen on the archives as well. It's always available. So thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. All right, it. thank enjoy you. The rest, enjoy the rest of your evening, all of you listeners, and we'll uh, stay tuned next Saturday for another edition of Shattered Lives.